0: This very special bonus episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore is brought to you by our generous listener supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you appreciate what we do and would like to join them, go to dollamore.com slash PayPal or dollamore.com slash Patreon. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dalamore. All right, welcome to this very special bonus episode, yet another special bonus episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore. I am your host, Jesse Dollamore, and sitting across from me, the beautiful, the lovely, the fear of planning, Brittany Page. How are you?
1: Fear of planning. Yeah,
0: I just said, what are we going to talk about in the intro? I like to do a little mini intro for every bonus episode. Yeah. And you looked at me blankly like I was an asshole.
1: Well, I appreciate the surprise, so...
0: What's this surprise or the surprise of asking you what we should talk about in this period of the show? The
1: surprise of you coming up with a genius intro, a little mini intro, all on your own. Not all on my own. Yeah. It's not
0: all on my own. But
1: you can... You could have.
2: Did you guys really bring me here to do couples
0: counseling? Hey, you have not. <laughs> you you have not been introduced yet. Oh, sorry. Pipe down over there, Doc. <laughs> Joining us, as you have well guessed by the uh, the information and in the title of this episode, we are joined by Doctor Chris Hoff, one of Brittany and my favorite humans. Yes. Did I say that incorrectly? Wow. One of Britney's and my favorite people. Yep. That, that's probably better yeah so chris thank you for being here we appreciate it in studio very excited to be here second time you've been in studio but the first time was a was... little subdued chris if you don't know chris has a youtube channel which is just getting off the ground which i would recommend every we're gonna get into it so i'm not gonna blow my wad <laughs> promoting it already
1: the radical therapist
0: the radical therapist podcast channel or uh YouTube channel. But you also have a podcast, which I had eh, a little bit to help you out. get um, More than a little bit. And you were in studio one time during a regular episode of the show, kind of sitting in, That's... commenting a little bit, a little bit little here, bit. there. Yeah. A little bit. And I think the fact that I'm, well, I'm slightly more radical than you, even though you are the radical therapist. I,
2: I, I just play one. You're I'm...
0: radical in a different way. Yeah. A more socially acceptable way. I'm more just like, God, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> So anyway, you have the podcast Radical Therapist, the YouTube channel Radical Therapist, and you are the director of a counseling center. How do you you explain it, Brittany?
1: A nonprofit organization, California Family Institute, that provides low-cost counseling.
2: Yes. Nobody's turned away, no matter what they can afford.
0: Low or no cost. That is
2: correct.
1: Yes.
0: And uh, you're just an admirable guy, because you do a bunch of good shit, (laughs) and we want to have you in and talk about it. Thanks. And you you kind of you bought up against Brittany with your your interests. So eh, I'll probably be sitting sitting a lot of the rounds of questioning out and just you know, being a sponge.
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. So where where <laughs> did you get the radical therapist from? Where where did you find that?
2: Uh, great question, but before I answer that question, I just want to say thank you to you both. I, I know you modestly said that you've had a very small part in the podcast, but the podcast and the YouTube channel would not exist without the help of both of you. And um, we now have on the podcast a very, you know, worldwide audience. I get emails from all over the world and uh, the, and that's very exciting and it's been a lot of a great fun for me. And I would be having these experiences without your help. So thank you to the both of you for that.
1: You're welcome. You uh, deserve it. So, all well, the good things, and it it's
0: a great show.
1: Yes. Look, I I, I do, you do good work.
0: I do have people come to me and say, "Hey, would you help me do this? Would you help me do that?" And normally, I'll answer a few questions via email. Oh, now I'm going to spill the beans on all these people who have reached out. <laughs> but one, you're geographically right here in Orange County, with us, so it's it's a little easier than something over over the the the, the span of miles. But you you also do good work. You inter- interview. People who do TED Talks, you've interviewed leaders in the social justice movement, as well as leaders in psychology and psychiatry and art and philosophy and science. It really is. Goddamn. It's a wide-ranging course of topics and interests that I think much of our audience would for sure be interested in. That's why we're having you on the show today, because I like introducing cool people two of the cool people yeah, who are out right, there listening right. so, so how long have you been in this space this psychology, this helping profession space? Well,
2: do you want me to answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> okay. See,
0: that's good. Look at this. <laughs> Um, Therapists
1: remember and come back, back around.
0: Back, back to Brittany's question, which was for my sake, because then I can hear the answer.
1: Where did the name of the podcast and the YouTube channel come from? Yes. The radical therapist. So the yes. radical
2: therapist. I was in a bookshop somewhere. a used bookshop, and I discovered a book called The Radical Therapist, and it was a compilation of what I had come to find out that there was a group of psychiatry psychiatrists back in the late early 70s, I'm going to say late 60s, early 70s, that formed kind of a a, kind of a rebel group in the APA uh, called the Radical Therapists, and they were very interested in political movements, social justice movements, um, kind of bringing some of these ideas to the psychiatry world, and then they ended up uh, establishing their own journal. And so this book was just a compilation of that journal that didn't last, I think, more than a couple years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I th- I found it really fascinating, and I thought, oh, the radical therapist, what a great name! I'm gonna, and I stored it away uh, for a while, and then you know, a few years later, when the podcast came, I thought, oh, that's the perfect name for the podcast. So that's how that name came about. That's so,
1: awesome. Yep. So
0: now maybe my question <laughs> could be asked. Yeah. Since the beginning of my question. Was interrupted by the middle of yours.
1: Um, I don't think that's how it went.
0: <laughs> anyway, so what led you, or what 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 was the the spark that started your journey to a helping profession? Because you have a background your your background is in business, and like you ran an art gallery. You're you're an interesting character.
2: Yeah. Okay. You want me to give you the story? Yeah. Give me. Give <laughs> okay. I'll try.
0: I'm taking it. notes. I'm writing your biography. <laughs>
2: yeah, okay. I'll try and keep it as short as <laughs> possible. <laughs> So yeah, so I this is second career for me. I have an entrepreneurial background. In 1996, I had myself and two business partners started a technical uh, staffing company. It was engin- engineering and IT consulting and had a lot of success with that, grew that to the point by the time I exited um, and sold out, uh, we were at about 200 employees. Wow. And yeah, it was, it was a good run. But what had happened is while I was doing that, I actually went back to school and got a bachelor's degree in psychology and was very interested in, in, in psychology. And so that was, I went back while doing this business over a period of years. It didn't happen overnight, but a period of years, ended up getting a bachelor's degree in psychology. And knew when I graduated with that degree that I wanted eventually to go do counseling, but I didn't know um, how that was going to happen because I had this business. I mean, I, I I was kind of what I tell people I had golden handcuffs, right? And so yeah, yeah. yeah and so I didn't feel like I was going to um, be able to ever to do that. But so some years kind of clicked by, and but I had a I had a, a, a faculty member in my bachelor's program that said to me at the time, and I'll, I'll never forget it, she said, Chris, if you really want it, you'll find a way, right? And I kind of held on to that, and then um, some, a couple more years kind of passed away, and then um, something happened where I actually had a friend of mine commit suicide, mm. and so, um, and it really, at that time, um, quite honestly, kind of broke me in a, in a lot of ways, and, and really had me reflecting on my own life and like uh just one of those moments of like you know we're only here for so long. Yeah. Yeah. What do I what do I really want to do with the years that I have left? Mm-hmm. And so I decided I'm going to grad school and I went back to my business partners and I said, "You guys, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. I'm going to grad school. I'm going to become a therapist." And of course everybody Uh, except for my wife thought I was crazy because I mean, I was living the dream, you know, I had financial security. I could come and go as I, please. It was just a, it was a nice gig. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but I ended up working it out. My business partners were still friends today. Um, and, and they bought me out and I went back to grad school and, um, started my journey, you know, so.
0: So why why um, why counseling why the interest in therapy and counseling the helping profession side of it I mean yeah. are your parents in the profession are they are they psychiatrists or psychologists no
2: but my therapist no my father has a, has been a long, had a long career he was a director of consulting for the center of nonprofit Management in Los Angeles and I think he kind of influenced me on the nonprofit way but I think the counseling came from... Uh, just kind of a bit of self-disclosure. I, you know, when I was 26 years old, I got sober, and mm-hmm. so, and in the process of getting sober, I had a lot of. Expe- I started to have this experience of um, working with other people and trying to help other people that were struggling with substance use, and I really enjoyed that work, and yeah. so that really kind of I think was the genesis of me. Um, kind of going down that path that eventually led to becoming a licensed therapist, right?
0: Yeah. So now now you have, you have a doctorate in family therapy. Yes. Is that the...
2: Yeah. So I got a master's degree at Pepperdine University in, uh, in uh, clinical psychology uh, with an emphasis in marriage and family therapy. And then I went on to Loma Linda University and got a doctorate, a PhD in marriage and family therapy, which I tell people is really getting kind of just getting a PhD in... Systems theory and relational practice.
0: So yeah. yeah, and you, the practice or the methodology that you're into. What's the word for it? Postmodern. Po- it's postmodern. <laughs> you're you're into narrative. Listen yeah. to me. You're into the. You're. It's what you're into now. Maybe later you're not going to be. But you're. So you, yeah. you're.
1: You, you were drawn to that.
0: Yeah, you were drawn to narrative therapy, which is yeah. a little bit different than what people oftentimes think of when they think of therapy.
2: Yeah. So. Yeah. So I, I would consider myself, I mean, I identify as a narrative therapist. I'm sure there's some narrative therapists that would not identify me as an, you know, because there's a wide spectrum of uh, ways of practicing uh, with the narrative metaphor. Um, but also, like Brittany said, I, I kind of fall under the umbrella of postmodern therapy, which is kind of newer um, has, a, has a particular way of looking at people and problems. Yeah. Um, whereas traditional psychology, I think, would privatize problems to the individual. What,
0: what do you mean by that?
2: I mean, they locate the problem in the individual um, f- free of context or environment or relationships
0: or these kinds of things, right? So, so me, uh, paint me a picture. Give me an example of that, what that would be.
2: Well, they would locate like something like anorexia, for example, as something flawed in maybe brain chemistry or some sort of you know they have no real they they would locate it in the person like this is something there's something wrong with the way this person's brain chemistry is operating or how they're thinking about things and we need to fix them whereas a maybe a narrative therapist would say well actually. One of the main um, mottos of narrative therapy, for example, would be the, the, per- the person's not the problem, the problem's the problem. And so they would look at something like anorexia or disordered eating in, in, in a lot of ways as being lo- the problem actually being located in larger cultural discourse, meaning you know, oftentimes not, not just women suf- suffer for, with anorexia, but, uh, but the majority of people that suffer uh, with, or struggle with anorexia our women um, are often under a lot of discourse about how they're to look.
0: Sure. How,
2: yeah. You know how they're to be in the world. Um, there's a very you know large measuring stick that women are often uh, expected to measure their lives against.
1: So I'm going to become a therapist and say, well, it sounds like (laughs) it it sounds like, though, you you're drawn to the postmodern theories because it kind of takes other factors into consideration. Right.
2: Yeah. So I think it takes it. It accounts for, yeah, uh, larger factors. And and it accounts for where oftentimes traditional psychology doesn't consider culture, not always, but for the for the most part, doesn't consider culture, larger cultural Context, uh, systems, th- systems theory, relational practice, postmodern th- therapy—absolutely looks at how problems are born in the larger cultural discourse, like racism, like you know, um, bo- you know these body image things. Sure, yeah, like class, uh, you know those. Co- just well, can, right, you can go on and on down the road.
0: I notice that you're using language that is decidedly different than what I hear. When we talk about people with let, let's 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 run with the anorexia thing. Sure. You don't say you're you right now are not saying someone with anorexia or an anorexic. You're saying a woman who suffers with this. Yeah. Or str-
2: struggles with or. Yeah. 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 You're, you're So
0: yeah. you're it's I, I don't know. Is it considered externalizing? The problem, not yeah, that, necessarily. A, absolutely.
2: That's very good. Is that us. what it is? Externalizing <laughs> yeah.
1: language.
0: Yes. Uh, externalizing language. Yes. That's yeah.
2: right. So one of the hallmarks of uh, narrative practice, for sure, is the use of externalizing language, which is meant to, well, problems, people come to therapy with problems that oftentimes have totalized their identity, which I mean... Uh, like addiction for example is a great one that oh, a, per- yeah. a person is just an addict right or a junkie or something like that and there's no other considerations about this person's identity and th- you know uh addiction is a problem that really totalizes an identity but when we start to give it space by using externalizing language like the addiction we can begin to open up space for people to have other considerations yeah. About their identity uh, well, and not in totalizing identity. That,
0: that, especially with addiction, is a problem. I think, in my opinion, no one has to agree or disagree. Just wink if you agree. Okay, two winks. Uh, it's a joke.
1: We are everybody's, so. Everybody's, everybody's looking very very worried. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that it's you know, hi, I'm so and so, and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. I That's. Yeah, and I, I think they drill that down in. Yeah. It becomes part of the mantra. Yeah. Which. Well, that, I've always thought problematic you, you know I've I've had parents and I've gone to AA meetings with with relatives and it always was a little weird to me.
2: Yeah and a, a lot of people um that that is a barrier to entry so to speak of of kind of doing maybe 12 step programs that kind of thing. I kind of have two two more than two minds but I'll share two minds. One is that yeah that is can be very totalizing and problematic but also Sometimes that, you know, proclaiming or declaring that you're an alcoholic or you're an addict actually gives you access to a community of concern, is how I would call it. Hmm. That it gives you access to social support in a way that we know the research shows that the number one predictor uh, in, of success and recovery is social support, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, unfortunately, however you feel about things like AA or NA or these kinds of things, uh, these programs they are well populated and they do provide instant social support for sure yeah
0: right and listen so- no listen, i've got criticisms of aa for sure yeah. but in its totality at the very at the end of the day if they're taking six steps forward but only two steps back they're still making progress and in the in the 30 000 foot view they're a good organization that does good work sure. well-intended work and I, i'm not shitting on them i just yeah.
2: But it's just not for everybody.
0: Is, but that is a difference between the kind of practice you, you are in in therapy yeah. and, and a 12-step program. And it's funny
2: you brought that up because I'm actually doing a white paper. I'm doing research, writing a white paper for an organization called Evo Health and Wellness in L.A. And they're doing a very different kinds of w- way of approaching treatment and that you don't have to stop to start. And the, the, they're of the mindset that you know abstinence tends to be the only course Right, Um, and they want to open that up to all different kinds of potential outcomes of what recovery might look like, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think there's, uh, I think I kind of agree with you that maybe, you know, AA's been. I think AA's success has been it's kind of its enemy in a way, so it's easy to critique it because it's pretty much the only thing out there. And but I think we're, I think, and we're not the only ones. But I think other people are beginning to look at what are some other ways that people can access. Recovery, however they
0: define it. Yeah, that's great, right? And you've been a sober guy for, yeah, twenty-five yeah. years. 20, yeah. twenty, twenty, twenty.
2: 20 years 24 years and i chose abstinence and abstinence works for me it's not for everybody but it's just as as, it's done well by me and it's just my preference right
0: it's a surefire method (laughs) if you can do it yeah right right (laughs) right right
2: right. but it's not for everybody but it's for For sure it works for me
1: it's interesting because the the approaches that are under the umbrella of the postmodern theory right um they kind of get a they have a bad reputation in the psychology community i think um Hippies, yeah. right? Is the yeah. accusation. Yes. Uh, That's my word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yes. A, a, but less serious. They're taken less seriously, I think, th- in some circles. Well,
2: and I'm sure some of your listeners, when I talk about when we were talking about externalizing language, right? They probably would say, "Well, like, but where's the accountability in that?" When it, like, oftentimes the argument I hear is like, when we begin to separate people from problems. Um, we're actually removing accountability from people. And I would argue that no, absolutely not, that we're actually beginning to re- restore re- kind of real accountability. We're beginning to invite people in real accountability. When problems are internalized in such a way, there's, they're just passive recipients of whatever comes. right? And there's no accountability to that. And then, and then oftentimes, you know, people get characterized in victim status, right? Mm-hmm. And by giving people space in that way, we, we can invite people into accountability. Um, we per- we restore personal agency, and oftentimes I've never said I've never ex- like worked externalizing with somebody and had them say thank you. I no longer have the problem. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. And goodbye. Yeah. No, uh, it's always a renegotiation about how they want to be in yeah. relationship with these things. Right.
0: I I do think um, it seems to me that if you're dealing with a problem, and I'll use whatever language is comfortable <laughs> for me because I'm not going to rework my. I don't want to rework my entire system of speaking here. Uh, <laughs> or I'm incapable of it. How about that? <laughs> but if you're dealing with a problem with someone, anorexia for instance, which can be deadly, for sure. How is it that you ex- there's only so much externalizing language you can use when you're dealing with something that could very well take their life. That takes in th- addictions another one. Mm-hmm. I mean, that could this could be the end of them. And that's the ultimate externalizing of something is when you're fucking dead. Mm-hmm. So OCD is one thing or depression. I mean, that that's another dangerous one, too. But there are many problems that people go to therapy over. You know, ah, just general malaise. I don't feel very good. I'm yeah, mm-hmm. not really focused. And so you go to therapy and you, you work through that. But some of these problems are the real deal.
2: For sure. Yeah. And, you know... um, they're absolutely um uh, matters of life and death oftentimes even problems that we might not think are matters of life and death for some people are are matters of life and death and um i would say though through the uh, once again through the art of externalizing you you again are inviting people you're giving people space from the problem right you're you're giving them space to have agency again in the face of the problem that this is not predetermined anymore. Addiction has a way of like uh, pre predetermining people's lives in some ways. And, and we want to put this, put some breaks to that and say, actually, yeah, how do you now now, you know, maybe abstinence needs. When I say, you know, there's a lot of controversy around harm reduction and these kinds of things, but you actually talked about that too, that two steps forward, six steps back thing, but getting those two steps forwards goes a long way. But uh, you know, but I think in the act, in, when we give people space to d- negotiate how they want to be in relationship with these things, it's very different, and it uh, and it provides more time, more space from, more life from uh, the effect, the damaging effects of addiction of addiction on people's lives. right? Yeah. and so I don't, I think we're actually working more towards life no matter how that would look right
1: and when you say opening up space i, I keep thinking of the word agency right yes, yeah. if people um learn about the different things that that have an effect on them and yeah. the different things that they're able to control even um and yeah. exacerbating a problem yeah. then they're able to have some sort of agency there um yeah. and control those things that are uh, that yeah. are affecting it yeah let, let
0: me i want to be a super big pro here and go way back to something that Brittany mentioned that I'm kind of interested in, and it was when she brought up the that the, the hippie thing that a lot of people think is kind of hippie ish. Yeah, I that's a term I throw around with with love. It's like an endearment that ah, oh, you fucking hippies, but that's really kind of an indictment a right. lot of times.
1: Well, and even in my program, in my training, um, which followed the scientist practitioner model, yep. they were very critical. Of postmodern theories, yes and narrative often wasn't even talked about. I think it wasn't even talked right. about.
0: I would go as far as to say what I heard was almost contemptuous of. Not just critical.
1: Yeah. And it, de- I mean, it would depend on who was teaching the class, of course. For sure. Right. And there's some people that have more integrative approaches to therapy where they kind of pick and choose a different modality based on the person's personality or what they're experiencing. Sure. Um, and, and those people tend to be more open, I think. But then you have some people who are... um. Followers of <laughs> like CBT, for example, that are hyper critical of the postmodern theories. And I, I find that there's not a lot of balance here, right? Um right. there's a lot of judgment.
0: A lot of one size fits all, and this shirt that I have is the shirt for everybody. And it might not be CBT being a shirt. Right. It's one size. That fits everybody. Yeah, I'm painting awesome pictures here for the audience. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Right.
1: yeah. So, what do you think about um, that critique? Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, yes. Come on, hippie. Yeah, tell us. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that critique. Um, I got a couple of responses to that critique, and the, f- the first response is that we've we're coming, we're kind ca- we the psychology world has been dominated by evidence based this move towards evidence based practice, and if we were to critique that, a lot of that is based in economics, and uh, politics, and however you, you want to coordinate it. But but there's a burgeoning body of research now that shows that, and it's co- for those that are interested, common factors research and therapy. Uh, a lot of people have actually spent a lot of time researching what actually works in therapy, and they have discovered that there's some common factors. And and the primary common factor uh, 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 in effective therapy is therapeutic relationship, right? And then expect, or then actually, client motivation, or what happen, what the client does outside of the room. Mm-hmm. Those are the two primary factors to effective therapy. Yeah, right?
1: and even the latter can be largely right. informed by the former.
2: Yeah, and the numbers that I have seen model ca- model accounts for only fifteen percent of the variance, right, mm. of effective therapy. So. But there's, but if you look at the psychology world, everybody's talking about models. You go to a graduate program, even me, I learn narratives, right? You, they're teaching models, and there needs to be a revamping of, of that. But, but I also want to say something about um, the philosophy. So there's a philosophy. The scientists, practitioners have a hard time with postmodern therapy because we don't do quantitative research on, mm-hmm. because it's not congruent with how we view the world. And how we view the world is that n Equals one is just as important as n equals two hundred. You know what I mean? Because n equals (laughs) I don't know. Okay, so n equals sample size. Um, And so, postmodern therapists believe that that a sample size of one, meaning my own experience or my client's own experience,
1: the individual, the
2: individual's experience, is just as important as some sort of band of normality that you've created Uh, in a sample size of two hundred. Because we're just as concerned about the outliers, the people that stand outside of that one standard deviation, I, as I, we are the people that are inside that. I think band that's very
0: them. valid. Because yeah. it's hard to. So do I. Well, my experience is more important than what your experience, or not? It's just equally as important. Yeah, I guess is what you're saying. So no, I, I like that because it's how can you tell someone sitting on your couch? Mm-hmm. Well, listen you're in, you're one. We've got a study that shows you just need to, is that kind of what?
2: Yeah. So we, uh, so traditional, we would say traditional therapy oftentimes is trying to move people closer to the norm, right? Um, If you are interested in different kinds of, sexual practices or you're interested in different kinds of relationships or ways of being in the world, or if your family wants you to do a certain, be a certain way and you don't want to do that, you know, a lot of therapy would say, well, you got to move closer to the norm, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Postmodern therapists are in, are not interested in moving you into some sort of... Constructed norm, right? We're interested in like finding out about how you, what your real preferences are for your own life, and helping you move, move you towards that.
0: So it kind of is equipping someone to deal with reality on reality's terms. If this is the way you want to live your life, we want to help you live the happiest life within that construct that you feel is going to be best for you.
2: Best for you, yeah. Okay, yeah.
0: yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm. I know a. little little tiny bit about it just from talking to Brittany and sure being you know relatively interested in the subject so this is yeah. eye-opening for me
2: now that's not to uh, you know and i i i just wrote a paper that's going to be uh, published in the journal a family review and family theory and review nice in september there's a plug on <laughs> uh on helping students it's on teaching marriage and family therapy and helping students cross epistemologies and i made the argument that um, the scientist-practitioner model or the, what I'd call the research-informed model is very important, mm-hmm. as is the postmodern model. Sure. So how can we... I'm interested in how do we blend these epistemologies. Some postmodern therapists wouldn't be interested in that and, yeah.
1: think,
0: and think you can't do it. To but. make a whole new shirt that fits a bunch of different people. Sure.
1: Still going with that shirt thing. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: right. Uh, <laughs> I. right. King of
0: metaphors! I do
1: think that that is... I think that is the best, and that's my favorite professor was integrative in that way, Mm. where he would watch videos of us with our clients, and sometimes we had this idea, um, sometimes other students had these ideas, where they were using CBT and really going hard with it at their client. Well,
0: didn't you the previous semester have one professor who said it was unethical?
1: Essentially. To do yeah. anything
0: other than CBT. <laughs> Essentially.
1: With certain things, yeah. Boom. Um, And you can just see when it's not working for someone. I mean, sure. you can just see it on the client's face and the way that they're responding to things. I mean, you can just see it when it's not working. And I think that that's one of the most beneficial things about training and watching other people do their work is... You can see when it's not working, right? Um, And that this one-size-fits-all thing might not be the best. But I also think that that's unfortunate because there's no real way for the general population to have insight into uh, the different therapeutic orientations that therapists have and really understand what they're getting themselves into when they go to therapy.
2: Sure, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And I don't know how to solve that problem. So let's solve it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think. There, Here's this topic of another paper to write, yeah, you guys. I don't know. It's tough. Co-author. Yeah, Co author. Yeah.
2: So, well, I think how do you. And that's a problem. And I think postmodern therapists are really concerned about that power that people come in to a therapist and they just think that they're experts in their job mm-hmm. and they're just going to f- go along, even though they're not enjoying the experience. Right. right. And somehow we need to somehow inform. Well, there's still a ton of stigma around therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Let's be real. Yeah. And unfortunately, in this day and age, I mean, we live in Southern California. Everybody has a therapist. But outside of California, it's a little bit different. Not, even in California, there's still, I was being jo- joking, but there's still yeah. a stigma. but um,
0: Certainly middle America. Yeah. You talk about having a therapist and say, like, what the fuck's wrong with you? I mean, that's yeah. very typical, I think. Yeah.
2: And I'm of the mindset, like I said, I've become captured by common factors research, and I've really come uh, captured by the idea: how do we teach therapists to um, what I call way way of being? Right? How do we teach therapists to sit with their clients in a way that, because now we know that the curative factor of therapy is the therapeutic relationship. Right? How do we teach therapists? Not models per mm-hmm. se, but how to do better relationships, right? Right,
1: because you can have all the tools and techniques in the world, but if you can't sit with someone yeah. and have them trust you, know yeah. that that you're being heard, right? All of these yep. things, yep. it's not really going to go anywhere. Yep. Yeah, right? for
0: sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, right. I would assume. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and the reason I like narrative therapy is, um, or even postmodern approaches, is, but I think they're just. Better delivery systems Mm -hmm. of therapeutic relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they honor the uh, they're much more honoring of the clients' experiences. They're they're much more interested in uh, attending to the power differential between the therapist and the client. And they're much more collaborative, I think, in a lot of ways, which I think being on the other end of a collaborative experience is much more fun than having somebody tell you all the things that are wrong with you. Right. Right.
1: Well, one of the most negative experiences that I've had in watching um, a therapy video (laughs) was someone attempting to do CBT with their client and the client was speaking and they interrupted the client and said, oh, was that a logical thought that you just described to me?
0: Wow. Well, explain yeah. what CBT is for the audience.
1: Cognitive behavioral therapy, which focuses on the thoughts, informing the feelings yeah. and the behaviors. It's
2: kind of pathology in a way because it's faulty thinking. Mm-hmm. It's
1: Yeah,
0: know. well, so kind of explain it. That if someone says something that's illogical, you would challenge them and try to redirect their, their illogical thought. To a different way of thinking. Yeah, back, to that, that right? back to that band of normality yeah, that I right. was talking about.
1: Right, because the maladaptive thoughts will inform the negative feelings and yeah. then inform the problematic behaviors that they're so, exhibiting. So in,
0: a, in a setting of therapy, and you're, you're, you're having a therapeutic relationship with your client, and they're in the middle of a sentence, and you, ah, um, wait a minute, uh, let's, I mean, come on.
1: I would be pissed. I mean, I would just be yeah. angry. Well, that
0: would be my last session with that person.
1: Yeah, and I think that a lot of people feel that way. And that's kind of a popular way to go about doing things. Maybe not as, as direct as that. I mean, that was a student doing that. So um, they could be more smooth in their delivery. But that just seems off-putting.
2: Yeah, there's a great exercise I use. Actually, in every class I teach, I start with this exercise. And it's from Alice Morgan, an Australian narrative therapist, and it's a, it's called Form A and Form B. And Form A is kind of this traditional form that we're all exposed to, like name, rank, and serial number, right? And your diagnosis, your what are your problems that you're coming here with? It's just this kind of standard intake form. And then the Form B is this kind of really different um, form that asks questions like, Uh, what do what name do you like to be called by? What, you know, just very curious and honoring of like, if you had to think of a cherished experience somewhere, you know, blah, 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 blah. So there's just different kind of catch. And then I have everybody fill out both forms. I have them pick a form to fill out. And then I ask people who filled out form A and form B what their experiences of these are. And form A is always like, oh, it's very cold and calculating, right? It's like, doesn't really care about me, whatever. And form B is a very kind of different experience. And it's the way I set the tone for every, even research class that I teach, that, that, you know, what kind of therapist do you want to be? Like a form A therapist or a form B therapist, Mm -hmm. right? And and I think it's just this experience of being, uh, giving therapy, giving future therapists the experience of being on the other side of these kinds of questions and what what the experience of that is. And it really wakes people up, I think, to to these ideas about how we how we can ask different kinds of questions that leave people with a different kind of experience.
1: Yeah, and I wonder if uh, how common that type of training is. Right? Not very. Yeah, because <laughs> even in my in my practicum, I mean it was it was a terrifying ordeal. And because... practicum
0: is for the audience's sake.
1: Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> God damn <laughs>
0: you guys! Sorry, Amateur sorry. hour. Sorry. lives in your fucking world. Sorry. A lot of people are like me. who are like. <laughs> Wait, a white what? paper? Huh? What's a what? white paper?
1: <laughs> so, okay. practicum is a class that you take while you're seeing clients at your internship sites and you discuss clients in that class and you, you you get feedback on the way that you're treating your cases. But
0: And that's where you see videos of other people.
1: Yeah, although I'm not sure if that's what's done in a lot of places. Not all of them. Yeah, it yeah, should okay. be for okay. sure. Okay. Yeah, it um, should
0: be, but not
2: all.
1: Yeah, and my professor would take the entire like hour and just dissect... The video a
0: 15 minute video and
1: pause after everything that you said after every movement you did and say so why why do you think you made that face after your client said that wow um,
0: Brittany loved it
1: yeah so she
0: ate that she, well you know Brittany so what's that she loves that question
1: shit. about what do you think you were trying to get to you know and make you really think about wait why why was I sitting like that why did I shift when they said that why am I making that face when they're saying that you know questioning your own behavior and what it's conveying to the client and I mean that's everything that we focused on was what we were doing in the room mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if that's common but I feel like it needs to be a crucial part of training and it wasn't just us he, he would point out things about the client as well um their body language if if i asked a question and my client you know crossed their arms why do you think they cross their arms when you ask that question you know um pointing those things out so then when i was in the room and the camera wasn't on i'd be able to think and be processing everything not just what they were saying but also what they were doing in the room while they were saying what they were saying right and what that would convey so getting in depth to all that stuff it isn't just as easy as yeah i'm gonna go sit down with my paper and here i go well it's also not
0: (laughs) how do you how does that make you feel how's that if that's not what it's
1: right you have to be juggling a lot of things at once
2: yeah i was taught i could never ask that question the how, how you yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it, yeah you know
0: yeah. You, as you're, the person's laying on the couch in some <laughs> Freudian cartoon? Yeah, right. Well, let me let me change. Uh, not so much get off therapy because where it's that's who you guys are at your cores. Whether or not you are therapy people in, in a profession, that's it's in your spirit. It's in who you are. So, but th- there is one thing I want to talk about with you, and it's the social justice aspect. Sure. Of, of not just postmodernism, but also just you as a person, because I credit two people with kind of bringing me around on social justice issues. One is Ryan Bell, mm-hmm. who the audience I'm sure knows, yeah, yeah. and then you—you're the other one. Nice. And we, we've talked—we've talked a lot because I used to be a person who would scoff at the even the, the, when people would say, "Check your privilege, check your privilege," yeah. and now I kind of realize why I bristled at that because it's a dick way to say it. Right. But white white privilege, specifically, is what I'm talking about right now. But privilege in any sense. Everybody has some sense of privilege. Or most, the vast majority of people experience some privilege in some way.
2: Sure, but they might not know it.
0: Right, right. Yeah. But, but white privilege is so goddamn in your face that it's for sure a thing. And anyway, so you were one of two who really brought me around. And it doesn't mean I'm bad or I'm fucking no. oppressing people. It's just that I need to... Ex- Understand the privileges that I have that others don't have. It's not it's not even that that others may not have. It's some people don't fucking have the privileges that I have. Being white, being six foot three, a big guy, you know, yep. being able to fucking yep. bully my way through. I mean, it's I experience a lot of shit that is that is good, that is beneficial to me, that people don't. So anyway, how did you get into that, or what 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 kind of is your
2: yeah, great question. And I and I and I love telling the story um because I came into my if you had asked me, you know, what I what I was about going into my grad program, I would have told, yeah, I read things like Man's Search for meaning, Victor Frankl, a classic book if you haven't read it. And um I would have told you I was an existentialist, right? I was going to do existential therapy. That mm-hmm. was I thought meaning making was everything, Wh- which is um just the eggheads. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> That, you know, that um, we live on this dirt clod going around the sun for a certain amount of time and everybody's, uh, everybody's stressed out because, you know... They can't make any sense of when, how, where, why, what. Right? Sure, yeah, and yeah. So and
1: that a lot of problems come from the fact that we know we're going to die and how to yes. reconcile that. Yeah, and what you know. Mm. So
2: so how do we make meaning in the face of these treacherous things that we're facing, right? And so uh, so I was very interested in that. So I go into my grad program. If you would ask me, I would have told you I was an existential therapist. What I because I had a very important mentor, Dr. Amy Tuttle at Pepperdine University. What I and some other people, other colleagues um, that didn't have the privileges that I had, right, um, I began to learn uh, fairly quickly that not everybody is free to make meaning, right? What do you mean by that? That I can at my point of privilege, my my you know, I'm uh, you know, if I would be completely honest, I'm at the top I'm on the top of the pyramid privilege pyramid, right? I can make up my mind about a lot of things, and I can make meaning in a a lot of different ways. Other people, um, people of color, uh, people of marginalized genders, people of, of, uh, you know, marginalized sexualities.
0: Economics. Economics, class,
2: for sure, do not have the same access to meaning that I do. Or cannot, or have a limited band of meaning making that they might be able to do. Yeah, you know what I'm saying.
0: Changing your situation. Yes, kind right. Of a, kind of a deal.
2: So I be, and then also discovering narrative practice and taking larger cultural, social, you know, uh, cultural uh, discourse into account. I, I, you know, I just became really interested in how we can expand people's ability to make meaning. Right. Yeah. How, yeah. Can, how we can you know, attend to these things, how we can expand those narrow bands of meaning-making that were available only to some people.
0: No, I, listen, I, I dig it. Um, I mean, I've never... It's it's easy to sit back and say, I've never been a fan of racism. Mm-hmm. But really, digging down and boring down into the systemic oppression of, of people of color, we'll just talk about it in America specifically, is... It should make every person who loves human beings fucking furious at the way blacks are treated in this country by our government, by the police, by other human beings, by uh, our just the the way the system works. And for me, you know, that's why I'm such a a loud mouth about Black Lives Matter Mm. is because of that very thing. Right, and it, it really did come around after you and Ryan Bell kind of influencing me on on the white privilege thing sure because you, you ha- if you adopt it and you start thinking about things mm-hmm. you realize that the way you look at the world and this is Brittany and I talk about this all the time because people look at the world from their perspective because that's all they have that's the only view they have to 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 the only lens mm-hmm. to look through at the world and they don't take into account that maybe someone else sees the world a different way by no choice or fault of yeah, their own.
2: Or is experiencing the world in a very different way. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's what I mean. Again, yeah. I don't have the, yeah, right. the fancy speak <laughs> Dr. Chris Haw. <Hoff>. Sorry. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and I want to say too that, you know, just cause I know there might be a listener out there that, Oh, so we got a social justice warrior in the therapy room that it's not about me taking ideology and indoctrinating people in the therapy room with my progressive ideas. It's absolutely not that. But it is about me becoming very educated about things like racism, privilege, uh, heterosexism, these kinds of things. So I don't collude with or repeat these kinds of behaviors in the therapy room, right? So I don't like, um, you know, transgress people's Uh, unknowingly while I'm in the therapy room with people that are having Mm -hmm. different kinds of experiences than I would. The responsibility is on me to become educated about these things. And it's not about me like, hey, some people really want traditional gender role relationships. That's great. But I'm just interested in making sure that it's done from a place of agency rather than being imposed upon them. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that is a concern that people have, right? If they learn how their therapist lives their personal life or what their personal views are, that that somehow is going to sneak its way into the therapy room. And I think therapists generally, the ones I know, are capable of working with people that they disagree with about things. Totally. Um, in fact, if you aren't able to do that, maybe you shouldn't be in the profession, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that you say it isn't about like I indoctrinating. Would not,
0: I would say not maybe you shouldn't be.
1: You, you fucking shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the way you would say it.
2: <laughs> Brittany's being very therapist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think the audience is getting a whole different Brittany. This you're, you're un, you're. We've cut out open your head. and You're pouring your brain out on the audience right now, as gory as that might be.
1: <laughs> okay, we're getting a different. Flavor I support of it. I support it 100. Okay. percent I like it. Yeah, I like it. So it isn't about indoctrinating a client with progressive ideals, right? It's just. It's about being able to sit with people and just understand varying perspectives, right?
2: For sure.
0: Well, again, it's encouraging them or giving them the agency to live the life that's going to be most healthy and happy for them, right?
2: Well, well and this goes back to your question too about the, like psychology, and then me being the hippie, right? <laughs> <laughs> Is that this room know,
0: does smell like fucking patchouli? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry, sorry about
2: that. <laughs> But but then, you know, but I would actually be looking at like larger discourse, like I'm sitting with a person of color and they're struggling with depression, for example. I'm going to ask about I'm going to I think it's going to be important to ask about how race or experiences of racism might be contributing to that experience of depression. Right. That it's not, you know, not. And rather than like some um traditional psychology might ignore that context entirely and locate and want to talk about brain chemistry and da 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 um, and then send that person back out into the environment with f- to which they come which res- there resides multiple stressors right i'm interested in finding out about that environment about experiences of racism about the stress that brings into the person's life and does that contributing to this experience of depression
0: in an you're talking about in an explorative manner not, exactly. you're not going to pin on no, oh you're no, depressed no, no, because no, no, of no. the racism no, no, no. when it's not the case right no, no. no
1: and it's making room for that conversation I think is is what you're trying to say and sometimes therapists would not address it no, right? Um, right in fact there's kind of this movement to like update intake forms and things like that and ask for more of this type of information to give people the opportunity to express these concerns so if you're uncomfortable asking about it because you don't want to like assume you don't want to come off as though you're assuming well then you can ask on the form and then they have the opportunity to to say it and then yeah. that gives you an opportunity well, that's awesome. to address it that's awesome. there's different ways to bring it up but the point is that there needs to be a move toward bringing these things in
0: more information is always better right
1: yeah no
0: <laughs> i like to speak in language it's absolute chris
2: yes i don't. <laughs> <laughs> and us hippies we don't
0: <laughs> well let's uh, i wouldn't say uh. we hem and haw so let, let me uh, let me change gears here. I want to talk about the YouTube channel. Sure. Uh, first of all, anybody who's not subscribed to my channel, well then, you know what? F- flip <laughs> off your device and go do something terrible because you're a terrible, terrible listener. But uh, I am actively involved in Chris's channel, not in the only in production, yeah. not in development or design of, of, of the content at all because I don't have the brain pan for that. But um i would encourage everybody to go and subscribe to the radical therapist youtube channel and the podcast which will be in the show notes mm-hmm. and we're going to share this episode and we're close with chris so it, it, he'll certainly i hope be a fixture around i want to do uh an interview on us just having a one-on-one talk here with the with the usa map behind us yes, yes let's do it um
1: so your your latest video is about attachment theory. Which kind I, of taking it on. Yeah, I was
0: super fascinated by it because I knew a little bit about it from you, Brittany, but I like the other perspective. Tell us a little bit about what your uh, what the video was about.
2: Yeah, so um, I came across two articles. One article was the Onion did an article <laughs> saying <laughs> something about all parenting styles lead to miserable adults, right? And which was really it's funny because it's kind of true. Yes. Um, uh, and then the other uh, article I came across was a um, came out of the British Psychological Association. A doctor me, I think it's means. I say me means. Um, it wrote an article about um, is uh, attachment theory over overrated and it could, and I make the argument that there's no bigger um, theory on this on the parenting style scene than attachment theory, right?
0: Which but, is
2: um, this idea that eggheads here. <laughs> do you want me to do it? This idea. <laughs> this idea that how you attach to your primary caregiver as an uh, infant, really is going to determine a lot about the rest of your life.
0: Right. So if you have a a mother who's cold and distant... Yes. It's going to affect the way you and your relationships go go, ongoing for the rest of your life.
2: Out into the future. If you have an an
0: overbearing, overprotective, clingy mother, it is going to inform how you... And your relationships go for the rest the of the goal
1: life. for everyone is to have a secure attachment with yes. their parents as so. opposed
0: to avoidant attachment right is yeah that one yeah, of them? yeah
2: avoidance one and so there's this argument that this all happens you know in the first couple years of life in an infant which is really terrifying for a lot of parents because you know parents are stressed out in a lot of different ways these days and most you know they're having multiple jobs um, they're you know not the primary care- caregiver all the time. Um, it gets kind of shifted around to familial resources, right?
0: Well and parenting books is a cottage industry very much. Well there's a lot, a, of, I, a lot of hacks out there are just uh, writing books one after the other. Uh,
2: well, I call it the parent the parenting industrial complex right <laughs> so, Yeah, that's for sure there's and it's just a it bombs bar and I, I sit with so many parents who are struggling with such anxiety and self-doubt about their own, knowledge and wisdom as parents and i really want to uh, um, support parents and getting plugged back into their own knowledge about their own kids and yeah about they know what they're doing right but a lot of this stuff um just creates a lot of worry but anyway so the, the article in the psychological association points to a, a very large meta study that shows that you know uh that a lot of these claims that attachment theory makes is, is inac- inaccurate that um and so that's kind of I think a big bombshell for the for the psychotherapy world because attachment ther- therapy is so big. So I'm just throwing out, and I'm not discounting. I mean, I, uh, sure, atta- you know, there are probably maybe aspects of attachment that are important, um, but I don't think it has the importance that a lot of people that utilize attachment theory give it. Right? Sure. Sure. And it just creates a lot of I think undue pressure stressors on parents, and they got enough as it is already. Yeah.
1: So. Well, I think it also impacts adults too right that aren't parents the 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 children of the parents that then grow up to be adults right when they start having problems in their relationship they might think oh this is because i don't have a dad right oh Um, yeah yeah. and all of these ideas kind of
2: yeah and you're capturing it all actually and
0: damn um, she's great isn't
2: she (laughs) yeah Well, and I just think, you know, psychology has a long, and I make this argument in the video, psychology has a long history. And, I, in a, you know, in heterosexual relationships, that's what I'm kind of privileging in this video. Uh, but uh, psychology has a long history of not being kind to mothers, right? And um, one more time, and, and going back to your point, Brittany, it, it one more time removes agency because mm-hmm. it, it says, because you had this experience as an infant, you will no longer be able to do relationships successfully, right? Right. And so you're doomed to do this over and over again, right? Yeah. And so there's no agency in that, and mm-hmm. there's no, it's just this predetermined thing that we want to challenge. That's right? a
0: life sentence. It's a life sentence, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Now it does, and I want to say to any of the listeners out there, you know, some of you I know have some probably really rough upbringing, and I don't want to discount or make light of that in any way, shape, or form, and it has informed you and shaped you in various ways. But what, what the video is, is uh, taking on is the idea, some of these ideas of categorizing people in three ways or four ways um, that are not very uh, agency related. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And we want to restore people's agency. We want to give parents, um, in, reintroduce them to their own knowledge and wisdom that they don't always these books that are getting thrown at them. Sure there might be some great ideas in there too but but I think you know what to do you know your kids better than anybody right you know you certainly know them better
0: than a book so
1: yeah and I don't want to use anecdotal evidence but I know for me mm, growing it's my
0: favorite kind of evidence brittany
1: growing up anecdotal. i
0: and equals
2: 1 brittany
1: yeah <laughs> growing up i i really uh, was fascinated by the statistics of what was going to happen to someone like me right so neither of my parents graduated high school. My, the odds of me graduating high school were very low, right? Was right. I going to make it to college? Would I make it through college? You know, what was what was going to happen to me? Um, and those things have fallen away. And it might be because I... Like overcame the statistics, right? Yep. But before they really informed me, and I was like scared, right? I, I, maybe yeah, like almost in a predetermined way. Yeah, yeah. like what's what's going to happen? Is this right? And I I think that that isn't useful in some cases. Maybe it can be a motivating factor, right? Maybe it can be useful. But I think sometimes it can be a hindrance, right, where it creates more anxiety and more problems than it does motivation. I mean, that's that's probably something that should be researched. Well,
0: look, I think statistics are important because they, they give a 30,000-foot view. And so I'll use that term again to look at – and look, these are the trends. This, we need to prevent this from happening, mm-hmm. these kind of childhoods from happening because largely – and I'm waving my hands around like I'm – a a witch's brew here, Mm -hmm. largely this is what it creates. Of course, there's going to be exceptions, and it's very avoidable, but it's good for, especially for governments, Mm. policymakers, to be able to look at those numbers and say, we got a problem here. We need to avoid these types of homes. We need to provide support, whether it be financial or counseling or, or otherwise, So I I do think the statistics are important for that matter because we can try to avoid it. Through intervention. Well,
1: and that's why the qualifier on average is probably useful in a lot of cases. Even sure. even at my work, kids will say things, and I'm like, on average, yeah. <laughs> okay? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't apply to everybody. Please be careful with what you're saying. Mm. Um, and that could be used yeah. more, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, Where it's yeah. not a death sentence. This doesn't determine who you're going to be, well, right?
2: Well, it, ran- it gets truth status in a way that I think is problematic sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so...
0: Yeah, all right. Well, we're we're approaching an hour here, and I'm gonna wrap. Let's call this a part one. Sure, Doctor Chris Hoff.
2: I would love to come we'll, we'll, back. We'll
0: call this a part one because I venture to say there's gonna be a lot of feedback. There's gonna be some questions. People are. I think there's a, there's an appetite out there, yeah. an eagerness for this type of dialogue and, and information, and we just happen to know one of the one of the perfect sources. For it, so
2: happy to come back anytime.
0: Yeah, right on. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, uh, we appreciate you coming in. Thanks a lot for the audience. If you have questions, if you're listen, for, let, let me say this: if you're in the Orange County area and you're in need of therapy services, yes,
2: please. Yeah,
0: go to cfi dot or is it California no. Inf, California no. Family Institute org. Yep, and we'll also have that in the in the in the in the notes of the show. Um, It is a low and no cost. So no one gets turned away. And, you know, whether it be depression or family therapy, if you're in need of those type of services, that's the place to go.
1: Is there a donate button on the page where people can donate?
2: No, you should. I'm a bad executive director. You should should do that. (laughs) I'll work on that.
0: There is a soon to be (laughs) donate button.
2: Maybe you guys can help me with
0: that. (laughs) (laughs) But until part two. Um, We appreciate you guys tuning in If you like what you hear here If you have been on the fence About supporting the show Through Patreon or PayPal We would encourage you to do so We are moving closer and t- closer Toward our goal of a third episode per week And we would love to have you on board In the Patreon Slash PayPal family We love you, we appreciate you And until next time For Brittany Page, I am Jesse Dollamore And this has been I Doubt It.